All right, LCM, good evening. Tonight is Thursday, April 14th, 2022, and the title of our message tonight is Death to Glory. Now, tonight's a Thursday night, but last night was Wednesday. That would be technically the night that Jesus was crucified. Now, if any of you have questions about that or you don't understand it, I've talked to Pastor Judah. He's willing to buy any of you dinner if you would allow him to teach you that. I'm only joking. You buy him dinner, and he will teach you that. Tonight, although we're, it's Thursday, we want to focus in on the death of Jesus. We want to focus in on that because so many of us have grown up with uh, Good Friday retellings of the story, or if you are discipled in LCM, Good Wednesday retellings of the story. But we find that very seldom do we still identify or interact with the death of Jesus and very seldom do we find its application in our life. So tonight we want to dig straight into the word. And we want to get into the glorious death of Jesus. So we're going to start in Zechariah 2, verse 3 through 5. You remember this verse? Oh, come on. How about, how about two, two donkeys? You remember it, yeah. <laughs> While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving... Another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Amen. Man, we were challenged from pastors Eric and Judah and a couple ordinary asses a couple Sundays ago. That God is seeking a city without walls. God is seeking a city without division. We learn that these walls are found in us and they must be destroyed. Yeah. We learned that for the city to be built rightly, these walls have to have a destruction, i.e. they have to have a death in us. Yeah. We also learned from Pastor Nick's message this most recent Sunday, Trail to Triumph. Wasn't that an incredible word, church? Yeah. We learned about Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphant entry. We learned that we are those that are laying down cloaks and branches, that they must be laid down, and that it is not for us, it is for them, that they will do what we do. That brings us to our next scripture in Luke eleven seventeen through 23. All right. Say death to glory when you're turning there. Well, we're talking about fleshly walls that need to come down before you have a, wall, uh, a city with walls of fire and glory within. So in Luke 11, verse 17, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive demons by Beelzebul. So Yeshua is responding to some false claims. That he is actually using the power of the enemy to drive out the enemy. Which can't be done. Right? But he addresses this further. He says, any kingdom that's divided against itself will not stand. Will come to ruin. Any kingdom that has fleshly walls within itself will come to ruin. Any kingdom that has walls around it 
cannot actually expand. You're restrained to the, to the, to the place, to the area of that city, right? Yeah. And if you have walls within you, if we have walls in this kingdom, then it cannot stand. They have to come down. Verse 20, it says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that is the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Yeshua goes from saying, hey, look, I'm not divided against myself. In fact, I have no walls here. This is not, this, my kingdom is not divided. But you know what? I have the Spirit of God, and by the Spirit of God, by the finger of God, I am driving out this power. By the, by the power of God, I am taking plunder. You know why? Because I have bound the strong man, and now I am taking back that which is rightfully mine. Amen. This is offensive in nature. This is not a, a city that has walls to defend. This is not a city that's scared about what the enemy may do to you, and that's why you're putting up fleshly walls, like we do many times, because we're scared, insecure, or you call it, right. right? This is not that kind of city. This is a city that has lost its fleshly walls, and now has a wall of fire and a spirit within, and it's advancing, and it's in the offensive. Amen. So essentially, there has to be a destruction of these walls before an offensive can begin. In short form, death must occur before there can be glory. We want to start in Genesis 22, verse 13 through 14. But before we do, we want to give you some context of the passage. In verses 1 through 2, God requires Abraham to sacrifice not just a son, his only son. And the text says, the son whom he loves. This is going to serve to test Abraham, Abraham's heart. God is essentially going to see where Abraham's walls are being built. Amen. In verses 6 through 8, Abraham takes the wood of the offering and he lays it on his son. Abraham here is also displaying his readiness by saying, here I am, when his son asks. Now Abraham is demonstrating his faith when he tells Isaac a lamb would be provided. Now, you can also see the faith of Isaac in this passage. He was probably about 35 years old. Most, think that he, most of you grew up thinking he was a little boy, but he was most likely about 35. So he knew what was going on. He knew that a sacrifice was happening, and he was allowing himself to be bound. Yeah, he's, he carrying, is, he's carrying the wood on his shoulders. Yeah. He's carrying this wood to the, sacrifice, to the place where he's going to be sacrificed. In essence, he's demonstra demonstrating his trust of his father. With that in mind, let's read verse 13. It says, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. Amen. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So let's catch a few details. Abraham demonstrated, demonstrated his trust in Adonai, and Adonai answered him. Abraham willingly and obediently participated in destroying his own walls. Yeah. He destroyed whatever was precious, whatever he wanted for his son. He put his flesh to death in what would have been the death of his son. 
Now, what God does next is amazing. But note, it would not have occurred without Abraham's death to self and Isaac's willingness, willingness to die. Abraham said something. He said, the Lord will provide on this mountain. He's essentially saying that God is going to provide a lamb, a sacrifice. And he's saying that this lamb of God would be slaughtered on this mountain in provision. But he's also referencing a place that a city would be built on that mountain. The mountain he's speaking about is the same place that Jesus would die and the same place that Jerusalem would be built. So this would be a city that God had already prophesied would be without walls, and that it would be an ever-expanding city. Come on. Wow. So a city was going to be provided, a city without walls, a never-expanding city. And we see in Abraham's life a principle that we're going to carry out throughout this message. And it is that death comes before glory. Now, you know Isaiah 53, right? Who is he speaking about? Say it loudly. Isaiah 53, Messiah, Yeshua. It's speaking about him, about his death. Yeah, that was not a tricky question. You should have responded with strength. We're breaking down our walls. That's it, that's it. All right. So, but we're going to give you some context. Isaiah 52 comes before, okay? In Isaiah 52, verse 1, it says, Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on garments of splendor. Jerusalem. The holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Wow. So this verse is talking about a glorious city, a city that will be clothed with splendor. We want to see this, don't we? Yes. Hallelujah. It's prophesying the glory of a city that's going to be without walls and that's going to have the glory within and that is forever expanding. However, we, meet, we miss that for this glory to come about, Isaiah 53 has to happen. Yeah. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And, they, and the will of the Lord will prosper. After he has suffered... After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. This, is, this is very, very heavy. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will for him to suffer. For his life to be given as an offering for sin. To prolong his days through that death. And to bring many to righteousness through that death. It says that after he suffered, not before. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by the knowledge, by the knowledge of my righteous servant, many will be justified. You see, there's, there's a glorious outcome that comes after the actual death, yeah. comes after the suffering, comes after laying his life down, after, according to this verse, pouring out his life unto death. 
For who? For everybody. For anybody that would receive this. So, you go ahead. So pretend you don't know that this is speaking about Jesus. And it is. Right, church? What Isaiah just prophesied is that there will be a glorified city. However, for that to happen, there must be a death. Like the example in Abraham's life, there must be someone who is willing to pay the price of death to self so that the spoils will be divided among the strong, so that it will be an ever-expanding city. You would have gotten that as a Jew. You would have seen that death had to occur, not knowing who this is talking about for that city to be built. Now, we're going to take a look at another famous passage. It is about the Messiah. But you only know that from 2,000 years of commentators saying it is Jesus. Imagine you were hearing this as a Jew 1,000 years before Jesus. This is Psalm 22, verse 15 through 18. It says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, obviously, this speaks to us of the death of Jesus. But in the next verse, I'm sure it would have left the original audience somewhat puzzled. Take a look at, skip on down to verse 29, and we're going to pick up. Are you guys there? It says, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now what you should be taking away from this verse, just like the original audience, is that there's going to be a death. And after that, somehow... Death is going to pave the way for future generations. Now, we could go on and on about reading passages like this, but we want to acknowledge the overarching themes that are so prevalent in the Word. The principle that we are sharing with you is that death must come before glory. Anybody studying the prophets would have noticed that. They would have noticed that death must come for this expanding city to be built. They would have noticed that death must come for the city to be clothed in salvation. They also would have noticed death must come for the future generations to be blessed. So now that we have established this, you guys, you guys ready? We're going to dig into the life of Jesus because he is primarily who these scriptures are pointing to. You would not have known that before Jesus, but they are who he is. They are. He is who they are pointing to. But as we do that, we want to keep the illusion of the first time. We want to actually imagine that we are there. We want to actually imagine that we are his disciples as we're reading the text. We want to imagine that we know what the scriptures have previously stated. That there must be a death to glory. And yet, we are experiencing Jesus' ministry firsthand For the first time, never before seen as it's actually happening. Do you guys want to do that with us? Hey, you think that's exciting? You're you're getting back. We're removing the veil of of us being separated for 2,000 years. And we're going to go back into the text, put ourselves there, and see what we would say about this son of man. 
All right? So in Mark 4, verse 41, this is, it says that they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Yeah. Now, think. Just think for a minute. You've never seen this kind of power. You've never seen this, anybody display this um, authority. This, so he's supreme above the wind and the sea. And these uh, disciples were just like scared. They were in fear. They didn't know. They were about, uh, they didn't know where to run because they couldn't run, right? And so they're, they're just scared. And then comes this guy that just calms, rebukes the winds and the sea. Displays an authority beyond what you can imagine. What would you say? Well, who is this man? I mean, how am I, how am I supposed to respond to this man? What, am I, what is my relationship to him? How do, like, who am I before him? He looks just like a human, but he's doing something miraculous, incredibly powerful. Amen. Oh, come on, do this with us. Imagine you're a fisherman in a backwoods part of the country, and you're experiencing a man who's doing these things. Yep. Listen, not only that, in Mark 2... The disciples witness an interaction after Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic man. In verses 5 through 7, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Come on. Can you imagine sitting there listening to the teachers of the law saying, Who can do what he's doing? And you're following him. He's chosen you to follow him. And he is forgiving sins. Yeah. In Matthew 21, 10, it says that when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Well, you know why they were saying that? Because Pastor Nick taught us about it. They were laying down branches. They were laying down their clothes. They were treating him as a king coming into a city. And, and, they, and people were just looking at those who didn't know him. Like, who is this? What is going on? Who is this king? He's riding on donkeys as a king? Why is he, why is he getting so much honor? What, again, what is my relationship to this guy? What do I need to do now? They are puzzled by the level of honor that Yeshua is receiving as he comes into the city of God. In John 6, after Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, the disciples had this reaction. In John 6, 14, then those men... When they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly a prophet. No, I got you. You didn't even notice it. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Man, you're sitting there watching Jesus do all of these incredible things. You're scared. Who's going to find food for this crowd? And then he makes it appear out of nothing. And you're saying, man, this is none other than the prophet who has come into the world. Come on, which prophet? The prophet that Moses prophesied of. The, pro the prophet that you must shema, that you must hear and obey. This is the prophet, and they're coming to this encounter, realizing that this is the man that was prophesied 3,000 years ago. So, in Luke 5, 5, 8, it says that when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So what happened here? They had been trying to catch fish, and they couldn't. Okay, again, an impossible circumstance. And Yeshua just simply says, hey, you know what? Just throw it over here. Obey me. Just throw it over here. And then they can't have enough strength or, or nets to pull, down, pull up all the fish that they're gathering. And Peter just had enough. 
okay? He's been walking with Yeshua for, for some days, and he, he just had enough. I am a sinful man compared to you. I, this, is, this is where I stand right now. As I look at you, I cannot re- be this person anymore. I am a sinful man. I am responding to who Yeshua is. This is coming to fa- face to face with the Son of God in real life, in the moment, and this is uh, Peter's response. Oh, come on. Interact with that, church. If we saw Pastor Peyton walking across water, many of you would start inviting people to church immediately. You'd freak out and say, I've got the best church now, because you saw your discipler demonstrating something before you. But listen to this. Not only as a disciple have you seen the miracles, and many of you have seen the miracles. Many of you have been there in Mexico. You've been there on the foreign mission field. You've seen God at work through your rabbis. But you've also watched this peculiar man demonstrate death to his own needs and desires over and over again. Listen to this. After having walked from Judea to Samaria, which takes a little bit of time in a car to do that. It's, it's on a hilly terrain. John 4, 6 says, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, or the NIV says, Tired as he was from his journey, sat by the well, it was about the sixth hour. Now, you're good Bible students. You know what John 4 is about. Jesus is about to minister to the woman at the well. But as he's doing this, he is tired. We often think of Jesus doesn't get tired. He doesn't get hungry. But as he's doing this, he is tired. And the disciples are getting to see this firsthand. They are watching him demonstrating death to his own physical needs so that he can give glory and life to those around him. Now look what happens in Matthew 12, 14. Matthew 12, 14. It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. Now, this, you, you've talked about the Son of God, right? He's their response to the Son of God. Now we're talking about his daily life and death as the Son of Man. He's having to face the same circumstances that you would have to face in any given day that you're actually preaching the gospel, healing the sick, taking the kingdom out there. Now we're seeing what Yeshua is facing, and this is death as the Son of Man. He's been persecuted, and people are plotting to kill him. He has to die to his own fears of maybe being killed right there or maybe uh, not doing the right move, but keeping the kingdom going. He goes and heals the sick. He keeps preaching. He keeps teaching, and he's not hiding. He's doing everything publicly. Man, he's demonstrating his death to his desire to hide. Man, we can get a little bit of that in us, can't we, church? Yeah. Look. Another one, after hearing that John the baptizer has died. And Jesus just wants to be alone for some time. This is his cousin. In Matthew 14, 13 through 14, it says, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. That seems pretty normal, doesn't it? But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. Now, what would you do in that situation? I need some alone time. My cousin just died. I need to be alone with the Lord because I have to grieve a little bit. This is not a good time, brother. This is not a good time for ministry. But he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. 
Imagine you watching your disciple doing this. Well, I don't think you have to imagine your pastors do do this. Jesus is demonstrating death to his desire to grieve alone. In his most weak circumstance, when he is absolutely vulnerable, he is demonstrating death to his desires and showing his disciples what it truly means to bring glory. Take a look at John eleven thirty three. Come on. John eleven thirty three. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Wow. The Son of God, the Son of Man, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, the, come and see Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. Now, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one that you hold in most authority and, and supremacy, he wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. Man. So Jesus is demonstrating in every part of his ministry the man that he is, the son of man that he is. He weeps. He loves. He is actually dying to his own emotions as he's doing this ministry. Why? He had, he had the power. And I know it's puzzling. It's puzzling for me. It's puzzling for you. He knows he can resurrect Lazarus. Lazarus. He knows he can do that. But he's also as a son of man walking in the flesh. He's walking in this body. And he's seeing everybody weeping. And he sees also Lazarus dead. He has to go through that period in which death is real. Yeah. Death is real to him. Death is real to his, to his uh, relatives. Death is real to Mary. And he's facing that. And he's weeping. But then he doesn't stay there. He shows that he is both the son of man and the son of God. Now imagine this for a second. Did you see how it says... See how he loved him? You realize Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die and did nothing with it? He didn't go. They begged him to come, but he did not go. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't because he didn't care. When he showed up on the scene, he wept. He loved Lazarus. But he also had to demonstrate death to his own emotions in the situation. Even though he loved his friend, he had to die to his own emotions so that he can show the glory of God in Lazarus' resurrection. Come on. Man. This is what we want to focus on tonight. We want to center ourselves around the demonstrations of Jesus. We want to look at the kind of man that he is. When we see the disciples say, who is this man? We want to realize that we are still servants of that same man. Yeah. We want to acknowledge the glory of who Jesus is, but also what he demonstrated to us in his humanity. Amen. Tonight, we want to center ourselves around the table of Jesus' demonstrations. In fact, tonight, we want to go to a banquet. Tonight, we want to seat ourselves at the table with Jesus as he is actually demonstrating for his disciples. And you would do well to pretend like you were one of those disciples there. Are oh, yeah. you guys ready? We're going to pick up in Luke 14, 1 through 14. Yeah. I want to ask you, do not remove yourself from this story. You are the people that we're talking to and the people that we're talking about. And we're inserting ourselves in here. Let's see how you would respond to this. So this story, Yeshua is invited. He's invited to the house of a leading Pharisee. And they're having their Sabbath meal. In verse 7... It says, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, 
he told them this parable. You realize Jesus is watching, and he's watching how everybody picked their own seats at the table. Now, there are other guests who were invited to the Sabbath meal. It wasn't just Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisee. Yeshua is probably seeing where he's going to sit himself. He's probably watching all of this going on and figuring out where he's going to sit. But in all of this, he never stopped being the rabbi. He never passed on a moment to demonstrate for his disciples. He knows that he is not there to simply have a meal. Man, we would, be, we would do good to remember that. <laughs> We're usually not there for the meal. We're usually there for the moments that our rabbi has for us. So in that moment, when he saw that everyone was picking the best places at church, I, I'm sorry, at the dinner table, when he saw everybody was picking the best seats at the dinner table, he begins to tell them this parable. Come on. You're getting the context here, right? Yeah. Verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So Yeshua is, again, he's, he's at this banquet, he's at this table. People have, are taking their places in this, in this table. Yeah. And he's just like, he's, I don't think he's even seated yet. And he's just seeing people take their seats. And like, okay, this is a good teaching time. When you are invited, like right now, right, do not take the best places. Because this is not your home. This is not your table. This is not your kingdom. Why are you taking the best place anyway? It is not for you to decide your place in the table of the master. What you will do, what your function is, how much honor you deserve. Your master who knows his guests better than you do, decides the place of honor for each guest. So let's say we all LCM are invited to a table, right? And you're like, where do I sit? Well, I'll just sit by the rabbi. Especially the mothers with kids. Yeah. Oh, I sit by this, by this uh, very uh, well-known Pharisee because I want the best place at the table, right? You don't get to decide that place of honor. No righteous man of God has ever done so. You look through the Bible, no one that has been righteous has picked their place of honor. And when they did, it was like Moses trying to, on his own strength, deliver the Israelites and falling flat on his face, right? You don't pick the place of honor. You actually... Wait until the master honors you with that place. So if actually, if you're going to pick a place in the table, Justin will tell you which place that should be. So I'm reading the words of Jesus here. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those, say all those. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is saying, whenever you sit down, you're to pick the lowest place of honor. Why is that? It seems to be that there's a riddle surrounding this. Well, because in all honesty, this is the one that you know for sure that you truly deserve. Yeah, y'all, y'all, some of y'all missed it. I could see you, you don't even know. You can do it again. You only deserve the lowest place, so that's the one you pick first. Come on. I mean, unless you're comparing yourself to others 
and trying to determine what your place of honor should be. Man, Jesus is so good at demonstrating this for us. Or how about you're trying to find out what is wrong with the other guests that the master invited and seeing how much more honor you deserve than they do. Because remember, the disciples have been watching Jesus demonstrate over and over. They've seen that this is an extraordinary man. They've seen that he demonstrated death daily. And they knew death comes before glory. Now, if you're going to receive any honor, it will, be be, it will be because of your lowly position you took when you were invited. When you take that upon yourself, you will receive honor because the master will elevate you. It will be because you are not self-seeking and prideful, but instead your desire was to actually serve the other people at the table. Jesus is looking to see really who's going to be like him in this regard. If you're going to be honored, it will be because more importantly than your specific place at the table, you are concerned about filling the table. In other words, you don't care about your seat at the table. You just want the table to be full. You want the table to be full with others that can see the death being displayed. You will receive honor from the master for becoming like the master. And that is Jesus' entire mission, is to demonstrate how to do this so that you can be like him. You will receive honor from the master for becoming like the master and not for simply wanting the honor of the master. But if you truly choose the lowest place among your brothers at the table, then the master who judges rightly will honor you rightly. Yeah. Are you engaging with this? Yeah, man. It's engaging with us. <laughs> so Yeshua addresses the ones who had been invited, all right? He's addressing those guests. But he's not leaving anybody untouched in this, in this uh, table, all right? Now he's going to start addressing the one that invited to the table. And he says, and, and by the way, both of them are you, church, okay? You are the ones invited, invited to the table, and you are the ones inviting to the table, okay? In verse 12, it says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Oh, man. Man, like, like that's, that's all I know. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. So don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Why? Because they may repay you. And what good is it then? I mean, it's not like we only love those who love us back, right? Or minister and hang out with those who have a, an, an appealing uh, personality, right? Or, or give attention to those who actually reciprocate. You know, I tried once and he did not reciprocate. So forget him. Forget him forever, you know. That's how we do it. Or like a husband, you know, when you're loving your wife and she's not reciprocating, uh, reciprocating, reciprocating, no. Reciprocated. Recipro that's it. <laughs> or when you're loving your wife and she's not giving it back. <laughs> you're like, okay, that's it, baby. I'm going to lay the hammer on you. This is what you must be doing. Why are you not responding the way you should? I am loving you and you're not replying back to me. Right? You know, inviting people to the banquet has nothing to do with you. 
The banquet is not about you. This is not about you simply getting people to church. This is not about feeling good about yourself when you went out and finally talked to somebody about church. It's not about talking people about church. This is about inviting to the banquet in a way that is not about you, but it's about the master of the banquet and them being gathered to that table. You don't do it based on proximity to you. Like this was easy. Like, you know, this is the person that I get along with. This is my sister, my brother, my... You do it based on who the Father leads you to speak. You do it based on the need that you see. You won't be the one that is able to see the need and just pass by. You won't do it based on if they reply to you or they give you back what you thought you deserved when you offered yourself. This is about giving freely without expecting anything in return. And you can <laughs> listen. Jesus is demonstrating all of this, but we're going to show you in a little bit that the disciples don't get it. Just like you can very well be listening to everything we're saying right now and still not get it. I know many, there are many in this room that have ministry aspirations, right? And, yes, we may, and yet we make it all about our ministry aspirations instead of the actual people at the table. Yeah. When, am I gonna, when is my call going to happen? Your call is sitting right in front of you on your table. It's the people that you've invited and the banquet you've been invited to. We're going to show you in a little bit that the disciples didn't even get this, even though Jesus was demonstrating it. But there's a superstar coming up who did get it. Come on. We're going to pick up in verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So listen, on the contrary to you being repaid by the people that you invite, when you get out of your shell and actually invite people to the banquet, when you actually look for the, the ones that the Lord brought to you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Hey, that in itself is worth a celebration. Yeah. Yeah. When we get out of our shell and we go invite people to the banquet, is what he is desiring. When you are not okay simply passing by those that are lower than you, those that you deem lesser than you, those that you seem that seem blind to you, lame to you, crippled to you, and leaving them where they are, but you actually do something about it, you demonstrate your death in front of them. But realizing that it is your power to bring people to the banquet. And it's compassion that moves you to give you your time and energy for those in need. So church, invite them. Freely you have received. Freely give. Lay your life down and give generously to those who can't repay you. You know that whatever you did to the least of these, you did unto him, Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40. And then, when you do that, your father, who is a righteous judge, will reward you for following the steps of his son at the resurrection of the righteous. It's almost like death comes before glory. So Yeshua, in summary, teaches those. He demonstrates to those invited and to those inviting to the banquet to not seek for themselves places of honor among men, but instead to seek to be honored by God and not in this life, but in the resurrection. You see, there's an element of death that we all kind of like, yeah, I'll do it if I get something out of it. No, a death is truly a death. You don't know that the resurrection is coming until you experience it. Yeah. See, a demonstration of this type of ministry occurs at another banquet, another dinner table, 
at the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, 36 through 50. So Yeshua has already taught us those who are, were invited and those who are inviting, right, about ministry. And now we're going to see a woman demonstrate this. Hey, where's the women in the house? <laughs> Louder, women. Okay. Hey, women do this better than men, and that's why we're preaching to y'all. Verse 36, woman, uh, woman, <laughs> Luke 7, verse 36. <laughs> when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman that in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar or perfume. Man, this is, this is very, a very awkward situation. So the, this Pharisee invites, this very uh, well-known Pharisee invites Yeshua, okay? And this woman sees Yeshua going to the house, and he just figures out that that's a good idea, just to follow him and go into that house, right? And she's not even being invited. She just goes because she's a follower. She's going where Yeshua is going, even without an invitation, But church, there's a woman who that is willing to go wherever Yeshua goes. Do we have a woman that's willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Look at verse 38. And she stood behind him. Wow. Behind him. At his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. Kissed them and poured perfume on them. Notice that she's not concerned about the reputation of this Pharisee at all. She doesn't, she doesn't care whose house this is. She walks right into there because she knows Jesus is in that house. Notice that she's, well, she's dead to the flesh. Therefore, she doesn't care about her reputation either. She doesn't care who thinks what's going on. Can you imagine being a disciple at this table and you see a woman do that? Yeah. It's a little bit awkward. She has her eyes on one man, the Son of Man. When she comes in, she picks her place <clears throat> at the table. And it's not the most honorable place at the table. In fact, she's not at the table at all. When she comes in, she is positioned behind Jesus. She's positioned behind him at his feet. We all picture this like kind of, you know, like this. No, she's actually grabbing the heels behind him. She's positioned behind him because this is not about her. She doesn't care about her position. She's positioned behind him because Jesus is the center of her attention. She's positioned lowly at his feet in the most humbled state in front of the entire banquet. Because that is the only honor she deserves. She knows that. She knows that is the only honor that she should get. And that is the honor that he deserves, that she humble herself in front of him. Now notice, what you're seeing here is that her ministry is at Simon's house. It's at Simon's house, and it's an extravagant expression of the love to the Lord. This is at Simon's house, and you know who's really not getting it here? Simon's not getting it. The disciples are not getting what's happening. She's demonstrating an extravagant expression of her love to the Lord, and they are not getting it. And those who have not died to themselves, those who have not truly died to the walls inside them, they don't understand it either. In fact, 
they can't stand such expression of love. In fact, look at verse 39. Come on. Hey, ladies, what kind of revelation of who the Son of Man is for you to pour yourself out in this way? For you to be crying at his feet behind him with an alabaster jar of perfume, wiping his feet with your hair and your tears. What kind of revelation of who this man is must she have had to be able to do this? Verse 39 says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he surely gets it, right? He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Wow. This is like the climax of being deceived. This is, she, he is completely, completely deceived. I mean, we should not be inviting the poor, the lame, and the broken, and the needy. That's probably what, we, what he's thinking. You know, we shouldn't really be focusing on sinners at all. As a matter of fact, let's just, let's just have our own little party here about, with righteous people and not, let, not, not really shine any light to them. Verse 40 says, Jesus censored him. Simon, I have something to tell you. You can tell Yeshua was not happy about his reaction. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other one 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him. Neither of them. So he forgave the debts to both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Now, what you're going to start getting here is that Jesus is speaking in past tense of what the woman has already experienced. Verse 44 says, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, That's kind of interesting. Uh, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, Simon, you did not even give me a kiss, you know, the kiss of a friend. But this woman... From the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Hey, Simon, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among them, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a beautiful, beautiful demonstration of completely unrestrained, unapologetic. Like she's not thinking about the world. Like he said, she's dead to the flesh. And there's only one man in mind that is the son of man. And Jesus uses this expression of love get a point across. Simon did not wash Yeshua's feet, not even with water. You know, Yeshua said, you must wash each other's feet, and he grabbed water and a towel. This woman is going far beyond that. She's wiping his feet with her tears and with her hair. Simon did not anoint Yeshua with, you know, normal olive oil, with a bunch of olives that are in Israel, but she anointed his feet with perfume releasing the pleasing aroma of Christ in that room. Simon did not even kiss Yeshua like like Shalom and give you a kiss. But she, from the time that she came in, didn't stop kissing Yeshua's feet. This is extravagant. This is like 
This is not going like this in a worship service. This is, this is like I am poured out on the feet of Yeshua because he has changed my life. Because he has wrecked me. He has delivered me. He has done everything that I could not do on my own. And this is what she's demonstrating. And this is the ministry. This is the ministry of one that has actually experienced forgiveness. Her ministry is not tainted with uh, fleshly self-glorification or thinking about what my purpose may be when I finally am called to wherever I'm called. She's just demonstrating how real Yeshua is to her. She's, she's not even trying. She's not trying to be more energetic or more, more, more in tune with the Spirit. She is laid out as, a pour, as, a, as an offering, as a drink offering before Him. And she's doing this not from a place of, I'm standing right here and you're there, Jesus, you're the Son of God. No, she's poured out before His feet behind Him. And this ministry, this type of ministry, is the one that Yeshua uses to minister to Simon. He uses this as a stark contrast of the dead religion that, uh, uh, that is in that house. He says, he says such things. He's comparing. He's not, and you know what I love about Yeshua? He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. You know, you see him in a, in a banquet, and he speaks to both those who were invited and the one that invited, and he's telling them, you're doing all this wrong, okay? Now, now he's here. And in the house of Simon, they invited him to our dinner. I mean, how many of you are invited to a dinner and just go, hey, you know, Simon, you, did, you, you haven't done anything for me. You know, why are you treating me this way? Look at this woman. Learn from her. No, most of the times when we go, we're invited to a banquet or, you know, a Shabbat meal, we're, yes, sir, yes, sir, you know, I'm following what you're saying. And, and really politely say a few truths, okay? No, Yeshua is not like that. Just like the woman is unrestrained by her love to him, Yeshua is also unrestrained as the rabbi. And he's letting everybody know what must take place. Now, this ministry causes people to ask the question that our ministry is intended to answer. Okay? Who is this man? You know, when you pour out yourself to Yeshua like that, people will be asking, who is this man? Okay, he had an experience with God that is beyond churchianity. That is beyond what people say Jesus is like. You know, he died and he resurrected. Okay, big deal. No, it's for me real. It's a real experience in me, and that is why this lavish demonstration of love is happening in this woman. This is an incredible passage to glean from, but we want some takeaways here. Jesus has been demonstrating death to his own desires, to his disciples. Jesus has been showing the extraordinary miracles that only the Son of God can do. Jesus has been doing these things, and yet he's in the home of Simon, and Simon still doesn't get it. And yet this woman, she's doing these things because she wants to partner in who Jesus is and what he is doing. She wants to partner in the death to herself. She wants to partner in his life. Look, you want proof that the disciples still don't get it. Well, let's read Matthew 26, 26 through 35. We're going to go to another banquet. And we're going to pick up some speed here because we're rapidly coming to a close. 
You guys with us? Matthew 26, 26 through 35. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. He's demonstrating. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You usually think it's just Peter, but all the disciples said the same. They still have not identified with the death to desire like Jesus had identified with. And yet they're saying it. We're going to do this with you. On the last meal that they shared together, Jesus is still demonstrating. And they are still not getting it even after watching a woman do it in Simon's home. Now you know the story. After this, they fall asleep while Jesus was laboring with the weight of what was going to happen in Gethsemane. While Jesus was being arrested, they're all going to flee and run away. So let's bring ourselves to the crucifixion in the next passage, because that's what happens next. Let's go. Mark 15, verse 33. Again, you're putting yourself in this place. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge and with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood before, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard this cry and saw how he died. What did he see? How, how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Man, what is so particular about this death that a centurion... A Roman officer is right there acknowledging, realizing that this was the Son of God. What had to happen for him to realize that? It was the nature of his death. It was how he died. It was the nature of how he lived coming down to a point of death. It was the nature of his life, who he was, and what it meant for the world. Let me ask you something. What will be the nature of your death? Let me ask you something else. 
what is the current nature of your debt? What is the current nature of your life and death currently? Is it similar to Yeshua's life and death? Is it, is, it, is it worthy of being called a disciple? Because when his life and death was happening before people's eyes, people were being awakened. Amen. The people were getting a revelation of who the Son of Man was. And even in his last cry, a centurion believes that he is the Son of God. A Gentile. When there's nothing else, he's stuck to a cross. He has nothing else to say, but he's weeping and he's crying out. At that moment, even a centurion believes that he is the Son of God. Talk to me about the nature of the Son of God. And I will tell you about the nature that is in you, sons of God. Because it's the same nature inside of you that he gave you, that he bestowed upon you. What is the nature of your life right now? And what is the nature of your death right now? It will tell of, the, of who the Son of God is. Look, when they saw how he died, church, how are you dying right now? How are you demonstrating what Jesus demonstrated for you? See, in that moment, they realized it was the nature of his life and death. They realized it was the power in his life and death that changed everything. When they realized the quality of his life and death, and it revealed who he was to the world. Jesus demonstrated death daily to his disciples, and now he has sealed his demonstration with his own blood. It caused this Gentile to recognize the truth of who he was. And if it caused a Gentile to recognize the truth of who he was, what do you think that it did for his closest disciples, oh, church? What do you think it did for those who had the revelation of who is this man? Well, it caused them to write things like this in Hebrews 2.9. It caused them to write, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. It also caused them to write things like Philippians 2 through 6, 2, 6 through 8, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself Nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you guys starting to get it? They didn't even realize what was happening. But you know it showed them the truth. You know what caused them to finally get it? When their discipler demonstrated his death before them and did exactly what he said he was going to do. Understood they wrote these things. These men wrote Hebrews 2.9, Philippians 2.6-8, the whole book of Colossians. But for them it wasn't just theology, church. It wasn't just something that they quoted. They actually experienced Yeshua demonstrating this for them. Oh man, church, it's so easy to be removed from the cross. It's so easy to go through your daily life and realize that this happened 2,000 years ago to a man that you have never seen. And in doing that, you forget how the cross should move you. you. In doing that, you forget how the demonstration of his death should cause you to want to die. Yeah. Yeah. 
You see, the disciples realized something in this moment. It all started to click at the crucifixion. They realized, how could a man like that do this for me? How could a man who came from the right hand of the Father demonstrate this for me and do it for me in his actions? I imagine this must have caused them to want to do the same for him and those around them, wouldn't you? In fact, look what happened to in the disciples' lives before and after the crucifixion. We have a slide for you. Man, if Yeshua, the Son of God from heaven, humbled himself like that to the lowest place, how much more should we? This is the disciples before. Before Yeshua's death and resurrection. Matthew 8, 26 Jesus rebukes the disciples for being fearful. They're fearful. They're, they're uh, overwhelmed by their emotions. In Matthew 15, 16, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their prolonged dullness. Are you still without understanding? Are you still so dull that you're asking me these questions? Matthew 16, 5, the disciples' minds were distracted by their perceived need for early provision. They can't really see it. They, like Justin has been saying, they can't really see anything yet. They're trying, but they can't. They're distracted by actual physical bread and not by the heavenly bread. Matthew 16, 23, Peter becomes a stumbling block to his own master because he has in mind the things of men. So he gets this nickname Satan because he is thinking not like his master. Mark 9, 34, the disciples are embarrassed to tell Jesus that they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Just like we should be anytime we're trying to take any glory whatsoever. Mark 14, 29 says the disciples insisted emphatically that they would die with Jesus. And they did. But not when they said they would. Not at the time. Not, not, when, they, not when the moment when Jesus was praying, he was asking them to pray with him. Mark 14, 50, all of the disciples deserted Jesus and fled be, uh, before his trial. This is the immaturity. This is the, this is the brokenness. This is the lack that Jesus took the disciples. But this is not where they stayed. Oh, but something happened, church. Oh, come on. They got a demonstration of what death looks like. You see, this is the disciples before the cross. Would you like to see the disciples after the cross? This is the disciples after. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Turkey. You're going to hear that quite a bit because Turkey is important to God. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Judea. John was boiled in oil in Rome and then exiled to Patmos. Philip was scourged and crucified in Turkey. Matthew was pinned to the ground and beheaded in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, beaten and crucified in the east. Thomas, run through with spears and burned alive in India. James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the tower of the temple and beaten. Jude was crucified in Turkey. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned and beheaded at Jerusalem. And Simon the Zealot was crucified in Turkey. Oh, come on, church. Tell me that these men weren't different after the cross. Tell me these men weren't different after experiencing the death of Jesus. These men were changed. They used to be men, and they were still not perfect, but they were in and of themselves changed because they saw their Lord do it and they wanted to do the same. 
Oh, church, the cross should inspire you tonight to want to die for them like these men do. You ought to be able to say, if he can do it, if he can be the perfect son of God, if he can do it for me, then I can do it too. I can do it in those moments when I, I'm just tired and I don't feel like having this conversation. I can die too. And I can do it with the same joy that, that he had. In fact, watching his death made them realize Romans 6, 2 through 4. Why was his death so important to change them? Because if Yeshua had any advantage as the Son of God, then it would have not mean much for them. He was both the Son of God and the Son of Man. And He showed them how to be a Son of Man that rises up to be the Son of God. So in Romans 6 verse 2, Paul says, By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know, or, or don't you know, that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul is speaking this. Actually, he didn't walk with Yeshua, but he did know Yeshua. He's a perfect example of us right now. You can get to know him. You can get to experience him. You can get to see him. You can get to reflect him. You can get to walk like him. You actually can get to live like him and you get to die like him. And Yeshua, and Paul said this with confidence. I was dead. I came to my grave. I was baptized into my death with him. I, this is past tense. I have done this. I have seen my master die and I am dying with him. So that what? So that by the glory of the Father, I will be raised up in a resurrection like Him. So that at the end of the days, I will follow Him, not just to the grave, but to the resurrection of the dead. This is what He's saying. He's saying, hey, look, the Son of God and the Son of Man gave you the path, the trail to triumph. The Son of Man, the Son of Man gave this to us, and He's getting us ready to walk like Him and to die like Him. In essence, we should desire to be like Jesus. In essence, we should, we should have the inspiration of the cross to want to go to our cross. With that understood, we think you will now have a better understanding of Zechariah 2. And this is our last passage. Zechariah 2, 3 through 5. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him. And said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. You see, God is desiring to build us like a city without walls, a city that has no defense, a city that is expanding and is currently on the offense. The only way for that to happen is for us to have our walls broken down. The only way for that to happen is for us to die daily. But I want you to see what this does. Skip on down to verse 10 through 11. It says, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. 
I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Look, this city without walls, it will attract others. How do you think you got here? How do you think after 2,000 years of apostles being crucified, you are still here? Something about the death of Jesus Christ has lured you to want to be inspired to do the same thing for him. The truth is, how will the nations come? Well, it'll be our death that's going to inspire others. How will our wives grow? How will our children grow? How will our disciples grow? It is going to be through our demonstration of death before them that is going to inspire them to want to take it further, to inspire them to do the same thing. Church, with that in mind, I say we can die with joy. I, I say we can have the joy of the cross set before us, that we can look at the moments of correction. We can look at the moments where we just have to really, really disciple our wives. We have to spend time with our children and pour into them. We cannot look at them like that, and we could see it as an opportunity to die so that they can be inspired by what we're demonstrating. Church, tonight we want to have joy in death. Tonight we want to return to the kind of smiles on our face that occur whenever we are facing death in the face, and yet we know what it's going to produce on the other side. When we know it's not for ourselves, it's for them who are watching. Church, tonight we want to exhort you. Die for your spouse. Die for your children. Die for your brothers. Die for your team around you. Die for the world to see. Lay your life down every and each situation so that those around you can see a glorious death. We talk to you about the nature of the life and the nature of the death of Jesus. My question to you tonight is what's going to be the, nation, the nature of your life? What is going to be the nature of your death? Are you going to go to your death kicking and screaming as if it's something you don't want to do? Or are you going to go to it smiling with joy, knowing that it's going to produce life to those around you? You guys, please stand. Mighty God, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. But not only the cross, we thank you for the life that you lived in front of us. Lord, we thank you that you demonstrated death so well. Lord, we want to join you in that tonight. Lord, we want to join you in a death like yours, not for ourselves, no glory in it for ourselves, but for them, mighty God. Lord, I pray that you inspire us tonight. Lord, that we can have the joy of the cross on us, that we can be looking to die for those around us. Lord, may our children learn from us how to die appropriately. May our wives learn from us how to die appropriately. Lord, we love you. Lord, we want to die with you.